the Gospel of John, chapter 13. I'll be preaching this morning in verses 21 through 30. It's John chapter 13, verses 21 through 30. And as you turn there, let us go to the Lord once more in prayer, seeking His blessing on the reading and preaching of His Word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the joy, the privilege of worshiping You this day. We ask now that You would speak to us from Your Word. Speak marvelous things to us from Your Word. Reveal to us more and more our Savior Jesus Christ, that our minds might be renewed, and that we might be changed more into His image. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord now from John chapter 13, verses 21 through 30. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom He spoke. One of His disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to Him to ask Jesus of whom He was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to Him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. May God bless the reading of his holy word, and let his church say, Amen. Have you ever had a friend or a family member, maybe a church leader, an elder or a deacon, or a pastor, betray his or her confession of faith. If you have, you know the hardship and the turmoil that an experience like that sends you through. Back in our 20s, Jean and Marie and I made friends with a couple in ministry, a husband and wife in ministry, and Over the course of two or three years, we developed a close friendship with them. We enjoyed meals together. We went to the movies together. We even went on trips together. Sadly, we had learned that the husband had relapsed into substance addiction, that he was mistreating his wife, and... Unfortunately, I had, was put into the position because he was so unrepentant and his sin was so severe, I had to report him to his district overseers in the denomination 
that he was in. My friend lost his ministry credentials. He lost his job. He lost his wife. And he relapsed into a dark spiral of addiction and homelessness and petty theft in and out of jail. We were so troubled by that experience. It was painful. It was hard. It grieved our souls and it grieved our hearts. I wonder if you have ever been through a trial like that. Where a friend or a family member, someone close to you, betrays their confession of faith. Where there is a disparity between their confession of faith and their life. Where there is a disparity between their public persona as a Christian and their private practice as a Christian. There's a difference, a a, a radical separation and a difference between what should be one world, the individual is living in two separate worlds. We read in verse 21 of this passage that Jesus is troubled in His spirit. You see that there in the text, verse 21? Jesus was disturbed. Jesus was unsettled. Jesus was in turmoil. Jesus is omniscient though, isn't He? He's the Son of God. He is sinless. He is perfect. He is God. He's the Creator of the whole universe. And He knew, as we have already learned in the Gospel of John, that He had come from the Father and that He was going to the Father. He even knew who was going to betray Him and all that that would entail. And yet, we read in verse 21 of this passage that Jesus was troubled. Why? Because Judas, one of His twelve disciples, was going to betray Him. And in so doing, Judas was going to betray his own confession of faith. What can happen to us as Christians when we we go through a time in our life when someone close to us betrays their confession of faith? What happens to us as Christians? I want you to see the problem that this passage of Scripture addresses I want you to look here that when fellow disciples betray their confession, we will be troubled. If you haven't gone through this unfortunate experience in your life, chances are you probably will at some point in time. Someone close to you, someone that you know, will betray their confession of faith and you'll be troubled by that. Just as the Savior was here in this passage of Scripture. Let's look at it together. Jesus, as I've mentioned, was troubled. He was troubled in His spirit. There is no separation between the two natures of Christ, as our historic confessions teach us. Jesus is fully God. He is fully man. He was tempted in every way, like you and I are, and yet He was without sin. Jesus was tired, and He needed sleep. Jesus grew hungry and He needed food. 
And here, when Jesus is betrayed or is going to betray by one who is close to him, Jesus is troubled. Jesus isn't going through this experience abstractly disassociated um, in body and spirit. This isn't the sort of thing where Jesus is like a ghost and the whole passion event is going to happen to Jesus, but Jesus is somehow above it and unaffected by the betrayal, by the arrest, by the abuse, by the affliction, by the pain of the cross. No. Jesus is troubled by all of this. He's in turmoil over this. And He's in turmoil even though, as He says here in verse 21, one of you will betray Me. Jesus knows this is going to happen, doesn't He? He is aware of all the events that are going to take place. He knows that the cross is approaching. He knows that His time on earth with His disciples is coming to a close. And He knows that the means ordained by God to bring about this event is the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. The disciples are unsettled by all of this. Do you see that there in verse 22? The disciples are speechless. They look at one another, uncertain of whom He spoke. And you can imagine, as they're sitting there at table enjoying this meal together, as Jesus says these words, and they begin to look at one another with suspicious eyes, and as thoughts begin to flood their minds, wondering, who could it be? Who will be the one who betrays Jesus? And perhaps some of them even begin to reflect on their own soul, thinking, I wonder if it's me. Or maybe, as we'll learn soon of Peter, they privately think, it will never be me. That's what Peter thinks, right? I will never deny you, Lord. I will never betray you, Jesus. And so they're wrestling with this in their own minds, uncertain of whom Jesus spoke. And so here in verse 23, this is uh, uh, those fun things in Bible study. Verse 23 is one of those fun things in Bible study. Here, the author of the Gospel of John refers to himself for the first time. Here we've gone 13 chapters, and John, the apostle, John, the disciple, John, the beloved, has been silent of himself. And so here in verse 23, he places himself in the middle of all that is happening. And look at what he writes. Verse 23, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. This is why we call the Apostle John, John the Beloved. In this culture, they would sit on the floor at mealtime. Men would gather together and they would be sitting on blankets or pillows. The table would be at the floor, floor level, and it was customary for the men to recline on their left arm. They would recline on their left arm that their right hand might be free to eat. And so here we see the picture that's taking place, you know, that, that painting, right? The Last Supper. Get that picture out of your mind. That's not what's happening here, right? They're not sitting in chairs at a table. No, they're reclining for a long period of time, leaning on their left arm, enjoying a meal 
together. And here, in verse 23, it is likely that John the Beloved is on the right of Jesus. Now, how do we know that? Well, let's read on in the text. Simon Peter, there, there begins to be um, you know, a silent conversation happening between Simon Peter and John the Beloved. He begins to motion to him, right? You have those kind of conversations with your spouse sometimes, right? Gina Marie and I, we've been married almost 18 years. We can have a whole private conversation just between us right now in front of all of you. See? Did you see that, right? Looking forward to that for lunch. Thank you so much. Here, Simon, Peter, and John the Beloved are having a silent conversation with each other. Peter motions to John, who is sitting next to Jesus, to find out who this, who this is. And so, that disciple, verse 25, he leans back onto Jesus. You have the picture in your mind. He leans back onto Jesus in close proximity. Right? That's all he has to do. He's already leaning on his left arm. He's to the right of Jesus. And so, he leans back on the Savior. And the two of them have a private conversation where John asks, Lord, who is it? Who is it? Jesus has already told them about this. This is the scene, by the way, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet and where He's gone around and washed the disciples' feet. He says you're clean, although not all of you are clean. One of you has been washed, but one of you is unclean, is what Jesus says prior. And He tells them in verse 19 the reason why He's telling them this. Look at verse 19 of John 13. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, that's the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus, you may believe that I am He. So Jesus tells them up front that all this is going to happen, including the betrayal, so that their faith will remain intact. Because what is going to happen to the disciples is going to be so disturbing and so troublesome, without the preparation of Jesus, it will shake and rattle their faith. This word that is used here is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It can be translated like uh, for the earth shaking, like an earthquake, or the earth being broken up, or in wisdom literature in the Old Testament about the mountains shaking or shuddering, or when God stirs up the sea, or when islands are dismayed, or even when nations tremble. makes me think about that big storm that we had uh, about a month ago, that hailstorm that came through Richmond Hill. How many of you were in town for that? Well, our little Noah, who is three, had just fallen asleep at nap time. And here come that, that storm and that thunder and lightning. And my wife said that, oh, he popped up and came running down the stairs as fast as he could. Why? He was so disturbed by the unsettling sound of the storm. You may have experienced this. Some of you are in the military, and if you've ever lived on post or on base or near one where they do bomb detonation, we lived in Fort Walton Beach, Eglin Air Force, test bombs 
on base there. Here at Fort Stewart, what do they do? They test mortar fire on Fort Stewart. And what does it do when they blow up bombs and test mortars? It rattles your walls, doesn't it? If you're in close proximity enough, you might even have pictures fall off the walls. Have you ever heard those sounds in the middle of the night? Have you ever been awakened in the middle of the night to the sound of those things being detonated and going off? It's unsettling, isn't it? It's troubling, isn't it? That's the word picture that's being painted for us here in this text. What is happening with the betrayal of Judas is so unsettling, it is like mortar fire. It is like bomb detonation. It is like a sudden storm in the middle of sleep. It is troubling. It is disturbing. And here, the disciples are going to feel like their whole world is being turned upside down. Like their whole, everything that they knew, the foundation is going to be shaken to the core. They're going to feel like they're going through a hurricane. I know what you're thinking here. You might be thinking to yourself, well, listen, Pastor, we, we shouldn't be so troubled when these things happen. I mean, Scripture tells us that there are false believers counted among our number. Scripture tells us that there will be many who will defect from the faith and, and Scripture is full of those who betray their confession of faith. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. We shouldn't be so troubled by that. I mean, doesn't our confession in chapter 25 tell us that the church is imperfect? That there are weeds in the church? We shouldn't be so troubled by these things, you might be thinking. Well, let me ask you, is Jesus omniscient? Here in this passage of Scripture, did, did Jesus somehow stop being omniscient? No. He knew all of what was going to take place, and yet, verse 21 tells us that he was troubled. No servant is greater than his master. If Jesus was troubled by the betrayal that was going to take place, we should expect to be troubled too. It's troubling, isn't it, when you learn about the secret sin of a spouse. It's troubling, isn't it, when a covenant child betrays their confession of faith and denies Christ. It's troubling, isn't it, when an officer in the church, maybe a pastor, a deacon, or an elder, falls into false teaching or falls into a heinous sin and is deposed from office. It disturbs us. It's unsettling to us. And Satan would desire to use it to rattle our faith. So what do we do? What do we do when those that we know betray their confession? How can we strengthen our faith in the middle of a trying time like that? I want you to see two ways that we are to strengthen our faith I want you to see here first, concerning the betrayer's eternal election, accept your uncertainty in God's sovereignty. You are going to be tempted in that moment to 
presume upon that person's eternal election. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, we just don't know. We don't know. So we need to rest in the sovereignty of God. That's what the disciples had to do. I want you to see here in this passage that they are uncertain. We've already talked about that, haven't we? They are uncertain who the betrayer is. Jesus tells them in verse 26, look with me at your Scripture. Jesus identifies who the betrayer is. It is He to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. It was customary for the host in that culture to take a piece of bread and to reach out into that common bowl and find some especially tasty morsel of food. To scoop it up in the bread and to give that portion to a guest at the table as a sign of honor, as a sign of friendship, as a sign of respect. It's likely here that Judas is just to the left of Jesus. It's perhaps he was even sitting at Jesus' left side as Jesus likely reaches out with his right hand, scooping up some morsel of food with bread and turning to Judas and giving that morsel to him. It's interesting, isn't it, to note the contrast between two disciples who are so close in physical proximity to Jesus and yet so far away spiritually from Jesus. Here, John, the beloved at the right hand of Jesus, he is the beloved disciple, isn't he? He is the one who is in close relationship to Jesus, who loves Jesus, and who, who in such intimacy will lean his head back against the Savior's chest. But to Jesus' left, in close proximity, is not the beloved disciple, but the disciple who betrays Jesus. The disciple who saw Jesus' signs and miracles and heard Jesus' sermons and preaching and received instruction from Him who likely would have memorized even the teachings of the Savior. And here He is receiving a, a, a mark of honor from Jesus as a close friend at the table in this moment. And yet, in His heart, in His soul, in His spirit, He could be no farther removed from the Savior. He's the betrayer. And so John tells us when he had dipped the morsel, verse 26, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. It's interesting here that Jesus has already told the disciples in verse 18 that He knows whom He has chosen. Now, he chose his twelve disciples, but he had not chosen Judas in a salvific way. Judas he has passed over. Judas is not one of the sheep that the Father has given to Jesus. Judas is not one of those for whom the Savior has died. 
Jesus knows whom He has chosen, and Judas was not counted among one of those numbers, one of the number of, of those chosen. And so the disciples here, were it not for the special revelation from the Savior, they would be uncertain of this. They wouldn't know. They wouldn't know who it was. And in those moments, we will be tempted one of two ways when someone betrays their confession of faith. We will be tempted to presume positively upon their conversion. We may think to ourselves, look, I know what they've done was horrible. However, they prayed the sinner's prayer. They were baptized. They were received into the membership of the church. They were catechized. I know that they know what is right. And so, I know that they are converted. And we will be tempted to presume upon their conversion and bypass the church discipline that God has ordained. How does He use that church discipline? One of two ways. To either call that person to repentance and restore them back into right relationship with God and the church. Or, to remove that false convert from the fellowship of the church. And if we presume upon their conversion, we will not use the means that God has ordained in the church to make the determination. Are they repentant? Or are they unrepentant for their sin? However, the other temptation will be to presume upon their election and say, you know, it's just too bad. I guess they're going to deny the faith. I guess they're going to leave the church. And so they're not one of those whom God has chosen. And so let's get them out as quickly as possible. And so the temptation is to weaponize church discipline, whether formally or informally. And instead of proceeding with a spirit of gentleness, weaponize the church discipline to remove them from the church as quickly as possible. Neither should be the case. We ought to be patient, shouldn't we? We ought to proceed as elders in the church in a spirit of gentleness and meekness, seeking the, the sinner's reconciliation to God and into the church. And I know what you're thinking right now. Well, hold on a second, Pastor. What about, what about the unpardonable sin? What about blaspheming the Holy Spirit? What about Hebrews chapter 6 and those who have once tasted the heavenly gift that once they fall away, that it's impossible for them to return again? What about all of that? What about it? Are you or I able to see into the person's heart to know if they are reprobate? I don't have that gift. What about 2 Corinthians chapter 2? Where Paul tells the Corinthian church, you know that guy who was committing sexual sin with his mother-in-law that you excommunicated? Receive him back lest he be overcome with grief. The assumption is that the excommunication worked. And the man became repentant. And he calls the Corinthians to receive him back. 
as a repentant brother. What about the parable of the prodigal son? Where you have the contrast between two sons and the one son goes off and wastes his inheritance and the father is there to receive him with open arms. Isn't that the kind of Savior that we serve? Doesn't He rejoice and take great joy in receiving a repentant sinner back into the fellowship of the church? When we're troubled by betrayal, we ought to rest in God's providence. We'll be tempted to presume upon their eternal election. And brothers and sisters, let me just tell you, we don't know. But we serve a Savior who does. And He calls us here to rest in the sovereignty of God that our faith might be strengthened. There's a second answer to this. How else can we strengthen our faith? I want you to see here the second way that we strengthen our faith concerning the betrayer's purpose in God's plans. Accept your uncertainty and rest in God's sovereignty. You and I will be tempted to peer into the secret counsel of God's will and fit all the pieces together and say, oh, now I see how all this was working out. Now I know. And can I just tell you, you and I, we don't know. We are uncertain how God is using that betrayal. Here Judas, look at verse 27, he obeys the commands of Jesus. He receives the morsel. He's possessed by Satan. And Jesus commands him, in verse 27, what you're going to do, do quickly. And so in verse 30, we see that while Judas is disobedient to God in his betrayal, wrestle with this one over lunch, he is obedient to the Savior's commands in going out immediately to do what Satan had put in his heart to do. Satan at the simultaneously rebels against the will of God and obeys the will of God. You and I can't see the secret counsel of God's will. You and I don't know how God is using a person who has betrayed their confession of faith in His sovereign plans. I think about Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 1, Simon Peter, who in John 13 is uncertain of all this. But later in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, he can say, oh yeah, all this was in accordance with God's plan to fulfill the Scripture. Jesus has already said in this chapter that this betrayal by Judas from one with whom He shared a meal. It fulfills Scripture. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying this is all part of God's plan. Don't let your faith be rattled. Don't be too disturbed by this. This betrayal, I know it's hard for you to grasp what's happening here, but God is still sovereign. God is still in control, even though you and I are uncertain about what's happening. Have you ever put together one of those thousand-piece jigsaw puzzles? You probably do, like we do, and you set all the pieces out on the table, and you do what? You find four pieces, don't you? 
what four pieces? You find the four corners, because you know there are going to be four corners, so you find those four corners, and then you do what? Number two, what do you do? Oh, you find all the edge pieces, don't you? And you begin to piece together all the edge pieces and all the corner pieces, and then after you've done a good bit of that work on a jigsaw puzzle, then you begin to find other pieces, and just at random, you begin to ascertain that they go together. And that the pieces fit together. And so you begin to put them together. And if you have a big puzzle, you probably have all these little groupings spread out on the table, don't you? You have the four corners, you have the edges, and now you have all these little groupings. And some of you, you'll even begin to put those groupings inside this jigsaw puzzle, uncertain of where they go, but with a pretty good idea. But every now and then you find a piece. And it stumps you. You get that piece of the jigsaw puzzle and you have tried every place on the edge. You've tried every place with all the groupings of puzzle pieces that you have and you don't know where in this puzzle this one mysterious piece fits. But you know something. You've got a thousand pieces and you know that this one piece goes somewhere even if for the moment you are uncertain. When someone close to us betrays their confession of faith, it's difficult to know where that peace fits into the plans of God, isn't it? It would be wise for us because of our uncertainty if we would hold off. We would pause in our minds and take that piece of the puzzle and set it aside and rest in the sovereignty of God. Now, you might be thinking here about Judas who is simultaneously rebelling against and fulfilling God's plans and purposes. You might be thinking, well, listen, doesn't this make God the author of sin? Who's responsible for Judas's betrayal? Is God responsible for Judas's betrayal? Is Satan responsible for Judas's betrayal? Is Judas responsible for Judas's betrayal? And the answer is, mm-hmm. All three of those are true. I've heard it said that God uses sin sinlessly. Scripture teaches and our confession affirms that we are both responsible for our sins and yet at the same time, God is sovereign. Some vessels, as Romans 9 teaches us, God has created some vessels for an honorable use and some for a dishonorable use. It's hard for us to know the purposes of God. How does all this fit together? If you came for answers this morning, I hate to disturb you. Sometimes we just don't know. And we must rest in the sovereignty of God. So what do you do when you're troubled by betrayal? You rest in the sovereignty of God. You rest in that. You rest in the fact that God is sovereign over that person's salvation and that 
If he so chooses, he will call them back to repentance at the appointed time. And you rest in the fact that this betrayal has not compromised the plans and purposes of God, that God is somehow using it to accomplish His plans and purposes for His own glory. And so, brothers and sisters, rest in the sovereignty of God when someone near you betrays their confession of faith. I wonder this morning if someone comes to mind as I've been preaching this sermon. Maybe it's someone that you went to church with and no longer attends. Maybe it's a family member close to you. Maybe there was someone that you know who was a pastor or a a teacher in the church. Someone that you looked up to. Someone that you admired. And they have betrayed their confession of faith. It troubles you. Let me just encourage you to rest in the sovereignty of God. Pray, yes. Be a witness to them, yes. Reach out to them in love, yes. Do all those things. And you, dear one, rest in the sovereignty of God. Satan would cause you to despair the betrayal. Satan would cause you to believe a lie about God that He is somehow sovereign but yet unkind or unloving or that God is not somehow sovereign. Let me encourage you to rest. When you are troubled by betrayal, rest in the sovereignty of God for He is doing all things for His own glory and for our good. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, we are thankful for a Scripture like this that reveals to us Your sovereignty that at every moment of every day in every second, You are sovereign. There is not a moment since the beginning of time that You have not been absolutely in control of all things. Even the betrayal of a confessing Christian. And so Lord, we ask right now that You might might do two things. That number one, that You would call those who betray their faith, that You would call them to repentance. That You would call them and draw them back to Yourself. That You would use means that You have ordained to bring them to an end of their sin and bring them to an end of their rebellion and draw them close to You and that You might use us as a means to that end if You so choose. And second, we pray, Lord, that You you would give us rest. That You would comfort our hearts with the trust that You are sovereign over all things. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.